everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 216. On today's show, we talk about a Roman fortlet, archaeological resources in the Grand Canyon, and partially digested food as a prehistoric food source. Whoa. Let's <laughs> dig a little deeper <laughs> until we find a Roman fortlet. 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 Words lost all meaning. <laughs> oh, my God. Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. We're yeah. in sunny and hot My God. <laughs> California. Yeah. Palm Springs specifically. Yeah, it is ridiculous. It was 106 today here in Palm Desert, Palm Springs. Yeah. Yeah. So we went out to Joshua Tree National Park, which was cool because it actually was cooler out there. It was. It's in the upper 80s, low 90s. Yeah. The elevation is several thousand feet higher. So it's yeah. much better. Yeah. So. Anyway, we got a couple of news articles this week. I want to know how some early <laughs> Scottish people got into a certain part of the land <laughs> through a wall. Oh, that was like super bad. <laughs> <laughs> so the first article we have here is called Archaeologists Discover Lost Roman Fort in Scotland. And Which isn't like strictly true, I think. It, I mean, well, it kind of is, but... It was kind of lost because we knew it was supposed to be there. And I'll tell you one in a second here. But we couldn't find it. So I guess that's the reason why it was lost. Yeah. And this is from Smithsonian Magazine. You know, one of my favorite <laughs> publications. They got good stuff. They do. But there's a second article, too, that we're linking to. There's a lot of information across both those articles. So you can check them both out. There's a really cool, like, artist recreation of what this fort would have looked like. And then there's a wall that it's adjacent to. And they, they put a lot of effort into making this recreation image. So it's really cool. Mm -hmm. che definitely check out that as well. Yeah. 
The reason why I think it's okay for them to label this as a lost <laughs> fort is because in 1707, antiquarian Robert Sebald described a Roman fortlet in the area of West Dunbartonshire in Scotland. And it was supposedly in this field near what is today the Carleth Primary School. Sorry, Scottish people, if I'm pronouncing things terribly. I imagine it's Carleth. Carleth, maybe. Yeah. yeah. C-A-R-L-E-I-T-H. There's the bad pronunciation I mean, for the day. <laughs> I've watched as much Outlander as you have, so my <laughs> Scottish pronunciation should be up to snow. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, I should But I honestly, though, right. I'm pretty sure it's Leith. Leith. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So anyway, we had this description from this guy in the 1700s, and over time, it it was either removed or it's been buried or it's lost or something because present modern archaeologists have not been able to find it. They looked for it all uh, several times in the 70s and the 80s, and they mm-hmm. were unsuccessful, basically. So obviously, it's for sure not visible on the surface where that observation from the 1700s claimed it was. At I the guess time. the only reason I'm saying I'm just questioning whether it was lost because 1707 is like yesterday to Scotland. Uh, right. Uh, I know. I know. That's why I'm like kind of shocked that, you know, there's this written account of it and then all of a sudden it's gone. But you know what? It's like everything. It was never gone to the local people. Yeah. Whoever was there in 17, I don't know, 60 and then 90 and then 1810, they know exactly what happened to it because they watched it degrade or the soil come in and cover it or some, you know, Joe down the road wanted some rocks for his house and he dug them up and moved them, you know, like, so the people that live there know what happened, but then that memory, that story has been lost to time and now we currently don't know it. Yeah, I guess historically speaking, I think I'm in the right century to say this because we've been to the battlefield in Scotland where a lot of Scottish Highlanders died. Culloden. Uh, Culloden, yeah. Mm-hmm. And wasn't that war in the 1700s? Yes. So it would have been well after this. Um, a little after, yeah. That yeah, was like so, 17, so, little 40s, So 60s. it's possible all the people that knew about this actually died. Yeah, true. true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not sure how. I actually didn't look up where in Scotland this is exactly, but yeah. it it the whole point of this fortlet was to guard against you know the quote unquote savages that they didn't want <laughs> coming into the right. Roman areas, which is basically just the people that were already living in the area. So by by then, I think the savages were the Scottish people because the British <laughs> were saying that. Yeah, right. Of course, as always, technology comes into play here, and archaeologists decided to take a more modern approach and attempt to locate the site using gradiometry. Mm. Hey, real quick, I did look up West and Dunbartonshire, oh, yeah. and it is on a really cool like spit of water that turns into a river, or maybe is a, a river that comes out of uh-huh. um, Glasgow. Oh, So okay. it's on that side of Scotland in the okay. southwestern corner, really. Culloden is up north of there. Yeah, Culloden's way north, yeah. and the break between like southern Scotland and the Highlands, I think, is up up that direction too. So yeah, this is definitely more like southern Scotland. Yeah, if I'm just looking at topography here, I mean, it's at the edge of the Highlands. Mm-hmm. So Loch Lomond is also uh, real close to it, with a, a waterway connecting these two here. Mm, okay. So yeah, Loch Lomond is pretty famous. So, gradiometry. Yeah, gradiometry. (laughs) Back to the science. Right, back to the science. That's what they use to look for this fortlet. And isn't fortlet like the best word ever? Fortlet. (laughs) I I can't stop saying it. (laughs) I take a little bit of offense to that. Like, fortlet? Come on, I built a great fort. (laughs) I know. And we'll get to why it's called fortlet just in just a little bit. But it was meant to be a smaller version, basically. But gradiometry... To get back to that. Yes. Is oh, a, sorry. Back again right. to the science here. <laughs> is a geophysical survey technique 
that uses small variations in the Earth's magnetic field to find objects buried under the ground without excavation. And here's the interesting thing. The objects do not have to be iron. Right. This isn't like using a magnet. Is it? Right? Okay. And in fact, gradiometry is... It's kind of another name for magnetometry, okay? Uh, because you may you use a, a magnetometer yeah. to to do these things, but gradiometry is the I want to say it's almost the more official term of magnetometry because you're you're looking for these variations in the Earth's magnetic field, okay. um, and and the Earth's magnetic field is a very sensitive thing, mm-hmm. and you can tell that because it barely is picked up by a compass needle. Right. Like you can deflect a compass needle from the Earth's magnetic field with your watch. Right. That's right. all it takes to, to break the entire Earth's magnetic field. Yeah. So when you have stuff under the ground that is causing abnormal densities and things like that and, and different shape and, and they're, and they're predetermined to like, not predetermined, they're human made shapes. Mm-hmm. We can map that essentially. Yeah. You, so you're basically bouncing these signals off around it and then you get this shape of a thing that doesn't look natural essentially is kind it of like that it, it's it's like any of the other geophysical methods that are subsurface is they have to they have to know what the ground looks like without human stuff mm-hmm. so they have to have a, a control they, okay right? right they have to know what it looks like and then not only that but real people that do this like good people that do this like if you got somebody that's good on ground penetrating radar they can be like oh that parabola because everything looks like a parabola with ground penetrating radar mm-hmm. radar like an in- inverted parabola because mm-hmm. it hits a thing and then bounces um, oh, okay. scatters so but oh, they can totally. look at that parabola and be like oh that's a grave <laughs> yep that's a pipe right. and that's a thing because right. they've seen a thousand of them yeah right yeah. it's the same thing with all these other methods so if you get somebody out there that really knows what they're doing and they've seen these kinds of things before they can know what the signature is of mm-hmm. course anytime i think of these even when i took my shallow geophysics class in grad school i always go back to hunt for red october because <laughs> the guy in the radio in the sonar room uh-huh. uh, i can't remember what his name was uh, but he was super cool he was the guy that was like trying to you know teach the young cadet uh, or the young seaman and then they heard something and he's like Oh, it doesn't sound like any sub we've heard before. It sounds like this. It sounds like that because he's heard so many of mm-hmm. them. He knows what the signature is. Right. And the computer does too because it, it chews on the, the sound wave and says, oh, we've seen this a hundred times before. It's got to be this mm-hmm. with this much certainty. These methods are actually identical to that. Yeah. Okay. You know, you have to know what you're looking for. And then you can say, you know, before you go dig everything up, you're like, I'm like 99% certain it's this. Yeah. It is yeah. interesting though, because until you actually do dig below the surface though, you are just going on sort of yeah. what what the past research is telling you it should be or could be. You're you going know? off fairly well-educated methods. Yeah, yeah. Get educated guess. Yeah. Well, they must have had some great people on this project because <laughs> they do think that they were able to locate what looks like stone structures or a foundation below the surface, mm-hmm. right where it was supposed to be, according to this account from the 1700s. So. Right. And then on top of this stone foundation, so it's really just the foundation. That's the only thing that they would be able to find easily because on top of it, they would have used turf, stacked turf to create the six foot tall rampart walls that were then connected to the wall that right. the overall wall that it was it was guarding. Yeah. I mean, I guess use what you have. Well, yeah, totally. So. I think I think turf was <laughs> there's a lot of turf yeah. up there. So they were able to basically build dirt walls you don't say turf i wonder if they mean like or if that's referring also to like peat and stuff like that because this is the area of scotland where like peat and stuff like that mm-hmm. is, is is harvested for making you know scottish whiskey well, in some cases well but no <laughs> it, burning it was just for burning and yeah. i think the burning flavor gets into whiskey because of 
right. the, the burning part of it. Right, but that's what they do. Honestly, I don't actually know how that works. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, so just a little bit about fortlets. And this fortlet specifically, they're small and they would have had approximately 12 soldiers at any given time. These soldiers would only stay for a week or so at a time at one of the small fortlets before they get rotated out and back to the larger fort. So this mm-hmm. is like a constantly revolving set of soldiers. It's a duty station. They don't want to be out there exactly. forever. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like it was probably yeah. pretty remote and maybe not the most like exciting place to be. So, Yeah. The only thing they had inside there really would have been about two buildings, two wooden houses or yeah. so for the soldiers to stay in. Yeah. yeah. Again, not super interesting. I bet they played a lot of whatever the Roman equivalent of cards was. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Some sort of stone game. Yeah. <laughs> stone dice game or something. So the reason we know so much about fortlets, how they were constructed, what they would have looked like is because this is actually the 10th one that has been found in mm-hmm. the area in association with the wall nearby. Yeah. And that wall is called the Antonin Wall. And it was once the northernmost frontier of the Roman Empire. Nice. Nice. They think there might have been actually as many as 41 of these little supporting fortlets along with the larger forts that they were, you know, coming from when the wall was active. Yeah, because the wall is only as good as you are defending it. Yeah, you yeah. know, you, you've you got all the space with nobody there. You know, you have to put these little these yeah. little stations in to protect it. Well, and if you think about it, if they think there was as many as 41, let's say 40, and it's 40 miles long, that would have been, you know, a fortlet every Every mile. Yeah. And but there were the, the larger fort was in there somewhere too. So maybe yeah. it's a little less than a mile, but but yeah. I mean, like in the Roman times, that would still be pretty far apart. Like you're yeah. not getting to the next one if something goes down without like hopping on a horse and riding. And I don't know how quickly you're gonna get there, but <laughs> Well, and also if if you see a you know, somebody trying to breach the wall, I mean one person's probably not that big a deal, but if you see an army trying to breach mm-hmm. the wall you're probably going to be able to see them from your half a mile away. Mm-hmm. If you're looking to the left of your little fortlet, you only have to see a half a mile. Oh, true. Because yeah. the other guy's got to see a half They've mile the, the other, other direction. Yeah. And there could have been people in between. And while mm-hmm. they didn't have radio communications, they could still send transmissions at the speed of sound, essentially, because mm-hmm. all they had to do was yell to somebody that would hear it and they could have people spaced out. You know, yeah, and then if true. you, hey, somebody's coming, hey, somebody's coming, or, or, or oh my God, <laughs> yeah. or they could do a Lord of the Rings style bonfire. <laughs> That's exactly my favorite form of communication or my favorite scene in a movie is when the bonfires light up when they're, I don't even remember what they're doing. They're sharing news of something from one place to another and they light up bonfires to because get there. the big city's about to be attacked. Yeah, you know, something yeah. like that. There's a lot of so attacks and whatever. It's like, it's like call everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was transmitting messages at the speed of light. It was. Yeah. That's true. Which yeah. is basically what we do today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they were pretty advanced. Nerd reference for the day. I know. Anyway, so this almost 40-mile-long wall was built shortly after 140 CE on the orders of Emperor Antonus Pius, obviously given the name of it, And it is suspected by historians that it was really just built as like a show of military strength Mm -hmm. because he wasn't like super amazing when it comes to military (laughs) stuff. So he was like, look at me. I built this wall. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) But they did have a need for, you know, controlling, I guess you could say, the indigenous populations. They certainly felt the need to keep them out of their spaces and mark their territory. So that was the other purpose of the wall. Yeah, and the guy built it in a way that was easily defendable and pretty much already controlled. Yeah. So it was just kind of like, I'm going to put this up and yeah, just not that big a deal. And in fact, it was such a, such a not big deal. It was 
abandoned after about two decades. Yeah. Can you which, believe that? Which I'm wondering about that. Did that mean they just stopped staffing it basically? I mean, they didn't tear it down probably, or that, maybe they did, but. Well, and I think that's one of the questions that they're trying to answer is yeah. like, why would it only have been in use for that long? Really? So like, that's a lot of effort for something that only had such a short lifespan. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, we're going to go from there to something that's had a slightly longer lifespan. The Grand Canyon. <laughs> Back in a minute. Hey, archaeology podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 216. And now we are moving over to the Grand Canyon, which we were literally at yeah. two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, this this article actually came out a little bit longer ago than normal. We usually try to get these pretty current. But we saw this article while we were at the Grand Canyon and we saved it like, oh, we're going to do a whole Grand Canyon episode. Yeah. But it turns out we didn't get to see too many ruins while we were there. It just the ones that are along the rim that you can easily get to were closed and the other yeah. ones are all down along the river. And so we just decided that having this one segment dedicated to this one story is actually the right way to go this time. Yeah. But the story of this article doesn't actually start at the Grand Canyon. It starts at the Glen Canyon Dam, which mm -hmm. is upstream of the Grand Canyon. So mm -hmm. first before that water hits the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And that dam was built in 1963. So in that time frame, when like all the dams in the country were being built, basically, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> and it was built on the Colorado River, obviously, and it did a couple of things. It created the Glen Canyon Recreation Area, which is gorgeous. We we spent, I, w I wouldn't even say we spent time up there. We drove through there one day, but it was kind of a leisurely day. Mm -hmm. And we were able to like stop at the dam and go to the visitor center and kind of check things out. It is such a cool area. So... Oh. I was floored. I actually kind of didn't even know where we were. Yeah. And we'd all of a sudden come out of this corner on the highway and we're just all of a sudden our RV driving across this gigantic dam. Yes. And we, yeah. we immediately pulled over to a parking area on the other side and yeah. then walked across the whole dam and went to the visitor center. Yeah. Cause we didn't know, really cool. we didn't think to look ahead cause it was just a travel day for us and we don't always have time to stop and do stuff when we're traveling. So we just sort of were going by and I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. I bet there's a park. I bet there's a stamp there for my national park pass. So and, and pro tip, <laughs> there is a stamp. Yes, Pause. there is. The Glen Canyon Dam is located in Page, Arizona. In fact, we almost kind of went through there. Well, we we actually skirted the edge of it. I we guess we did. We kind of went through the edge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's on the northern border of Arizona and Utah. And if you've heard of Lake Powell, which was one of the ones that really suffered from the droughts that mm -hmm. pretty much the entire area was having, Arizona, California, mm -hmm. all that Lake Powell was one of the ones that was super low. Yeah. I don't think as many bodies were found in Lake Powell <laughs> as there were in Lake Mead. It's not so close to a big city, yeah. so probably big not. Big city hell, Las Vegas. Yes. Specifically. Yes, Las Vegas specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. True, but it is, it's a really cool lake, like the rest of that area up there. So it's mm -hmm. definitely worth a visit. We'll, we'll go back there one of these days. Yeah. There's some really cool spots where you can like park your RV, like right along the water and stuff. Yeah. Well, where the water used to be, but like you said, because the water right. is so low, it might not be actually near the water. Yeah. Anyway, we'll go back one day. 
So this article is was written because unfortunately this dam, which has created this gorgeous recreation area and is a really cool feature itself, it's having a somewhat negative impact on the downstream archaeological resources that are in the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And so here's how here's what that effect is. Basically, when you dam up a river like that, it reduces the amount of sediment that is carried downstream by the water. And in this case, that water is the Colorado River. And that sediment would normally bury sites and protect them. And it would do that because it creates sandbars and stuff. And then the water, the sediment gets washed ashore. So anyway, there's this whole like soil deposition thing that's not happening anymore because of the lack of flow of the water. Not happening as much. Not Not happening as much. There's still sediment that's created post-dam. Yes, and there's still like wind erosion or wind soil yeah, sediment and stuff and, and going runoff on. So, in the Grand Canyon and pre and before yes, that. But we'll get to the runoff piece yeah, in yeah. a minute. But yeah. so this lack of soil means that the sites are more exposed and they're experiencing erosion and deterioration, basically in a way that they were not experiencing it before the dam was constructed. So right. that's that's the difference here. And it is having a somewhat negative effect on the sites themselves. I have so much to say about this. <laughs> well, really quick, I just wanted to address a common mi- misconception about like archaeologists in general, and that is that we always want to excavate everything. Yeah. But I think the ultimate goal here is to protect the resources or preserve. Or preserve. And and not only because you just don't want to harm them, but also because it's protecting it for future research potentially, right? Yeah. Like there might be a technology that comes along in 20, 40, 50 years that does something that we just can't do right now. Yeah. I mean, we usually excavate stuff when it's about to be destroyed anyway mm-hmm. by development or yeah. something like that, or even other natural factors like, you know, stream erosion. Yeah. Things, things like that. That happens a lot actually in the East Coast because a lot of the rivers that traverse probably east of the Mississippi and a lot of stuff down through the Midwest, actually, too, where there's a lot of, uh, you know, really softer soil rather than just like hard rock. Mm-hmm. Like the Grand Canyon took hundreds of millions of years to carve out. Right. But if that kind of water had been present in, say, Kansas, it would have taken 100 years. Oh, <laughs> That's true. an exaggeration. Right. right. But, but you know, that yeah. kind of soil. And that's why that's why rivers, you get like oxbows and you get like all these different things where the rivers are, uh, you know, really moving around a lot mm-hmm. because the soil allows for that. But when that's happening, you get archaeological sites that are destroyed. You mm-hmm. get historic sites that are destroyed, things like that. You know, you can't build too close to them unless they build up the banks of them or something like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's why we usually excavate. But, yeah, you know, in this case, if we don't have to excavate because we don't think there's anything new we can learn, mm-hmm. then we're probably not going to. Yeah, there's no reason to if they're not yeah. in imminent danger from something, whatever yeah. that might be, humans, natural things, whatever. It's really best to just let them stay buried. And most Native American groups, I think, would agree with that too. They sort of prefer for things to just be left alone unless they can't be left alone. Yeah. So I mentioned runoff earlier. Yeah. So climate change is another factor here, right? So climate change is causing an increase of intense rainstorms, which then cause intense water runoff mm-hmm. that can potentially damage sites because they are now uncovered and they're not buried in this protective layer of sediment. So that's another or that's a version of the damage that is happening to these sites. To be clear, though, one thing that was missing from this article, and it seems to have been missing from the whole paper and the reporting itself is that they did not specify specific damage to the sites. All they did was say 
damage was observed. Right. And I'm sure they know what that damage is, but they've chosen not to share it, which makes me go, hmm, <laughs> like, why can't you tell us exactly what? Sure. But, you know, it's the National Park Service. Maybe they need to keep it quiet for whatever reason. But yeah, I know. And if you're triggered by the words climate change, too, especially in this area, I mean, all you got to do is look at the winter that the West has had, Mm -hmm. specifically California. Yeah. And and everything downstream from California, which would be this area. And just the sheer amount of snow. I mean, the north rim of the Grand Canyon is not slated to open and they just hope it's going to open this date. Mm -hmm. What was it? June 2nd? June something. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might be even later than that now. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're closing as we're recording this in 2023 uh, at the end of April, they're closing Yosemite National Park down in the valley for a little while Mm -hmm. because the record snowfalls that were received in the Sierras are melting now. Yes, and they're afraid of flash flooding and yeah, they're and water that could be really, really dangerous for yeah. people. So that's all part of this climate change stuff right. that's going on. And again, climate change is real, whether you think it was caused by humans or not. The climate has changed every single decade mm-hmm. for the existence of the planet. Yes. Right. So it's just what you might be triggered by is the cause of the climate change, which we're not talking about. Yeah, no, we don't even need to go into that. All we have to do is like look at the effects of it and figure out how to mitigate them. Right. Like that's all we can really do on this podcast from this standpoint and what these guys are doing, too, in this article. But here in a few minutes, (laughs) I'll give you my opinions. On why none of this actually matters. Go ahead. Oh my God. <laughs> I never should have picked this article. We argued about this at a Mexican restaurant on Friday night. Oh, it was really fun, though. It was more of a debate, I think. I but know. Anyway. Yeah, it was a debate. <laughs> so they, they wanted to quantify these impacts, this negative impact that they were observing. So what they did is the U.S. Geological Survey's Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center, in conjunction with the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program, surveyed and monitored all the sites in a selected area from 2010 to 2020. So nice. this this represents 10 years of observation, essentially. Mm-hmm. And here comes the technology portion of the, of the segment. <laughs> they used LIDAR, which is high-resolution terrestrial light detection and ranging equipment, to map the soil and wind-blown sand on archaeological sites and to map the changes, essentially. Right. So LIDAR... It basically uses a laser that Mm -hmm. is pulsed at a massive high rate of speed. Mm -hmm. And what that does is when it sends a pulse out, because it's so fast and lasers travel at the speed of light, it hits things and comes back. Mm -hmm. And if you rapidly fire that pulse and when i say rapidly fire i mean it's it's a high, it's a number i can't even conceive of times per second mm-hmm. right it's so fast it looks like it's on solidly mm-hmm. right so but because it is pulsing it's given it the opportunity to measure the return off of every single one of those pulses and then builds a hyper accurate representation of the ground that that laser is looking at right and that's how they map that's how they map all kinds of surfaces that's actually how they map jungle surfaces too right right. down in like belize and things like that they'll fly in a plane a, a huge lidar machine that's that's attached to an aircraft and people are like, well, how can it see through the vegetation? It's not actually seeing through the vegetation. It's seeing around the vegetation. Yeah. It's seeing through those little cracks that we can't actually see. But uh, yeah, but it's yeah. seeing enough of them. And it's doing it so many times per second that it's building a picture of the ground that allows us to see structures that we didn't know were there. Mm-hmm. So similar to that, this is allowing us to get distances, ranges, any surface anomalies that we may not be able to see because of vegetation mm-hmm. and other things. And once you strip all that away and you just have really a naked representation of the surface, which is what LIDAR is going to give you, mm-hmm. you see stuff that you didn't know was there. Yeah, or you see a site that 
there was more significant coverage. And then as time goes on, this 10 year period goes yeah. on, there's less coverage essentially. I mean, right? if you do it every year. Yeah. So you've got this change. comparison. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So the sites that they're looking at include prehistoric sites like small campsites, rock Here art, rock dwellings, irrigation systems, and agricultural areas. And then there are also historic sites like right. mining settlement areas and something called the Old Lees Ferry Crossing, which is a boondocking area, by the way. And nice. I considered having us go there in our rig, but then plans changed and we didn't go. Yep. But we might make it there yep. at some point. Yep. 21 out of the 22 sites that they looked at degraded over that 10-year period and were in worse condition due to what they said were dam operations, mm -hmm. right? Which I'm not disputing at all. Yeah. Um, but definitely something that should be taken into account. The river sediment that used to flow down the Colorado and get deposited with the seasonal flooding, as we said before, was keeping those sites protected from year to year. And it's theoretically no longer doing that, or at least not doing it to the extent that it was doing it before. Right. Right. So. Yeah. Like we said, that sediment is basically trapped behind the wall of the dam. So I'm like, why don't we just figure out how to get that sediment out from behind there? <laughs> I don't think they can just Chuck the mud over the dam. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. This dam is insane. It looks like it's like the one by Lake Mead right. in Las Vegas. Yeah. So, so the degradation cited in the report attributed reduced sediment supply to reduced river sandbars as well as the encroachment of vegetation. So the other thing that's happening here is there is invasive grasses and vegetation that is starting to grow on these sandbars where it wasn't able to grow before because of the constant soil deposition and water movement that was happening well, in there. And probably not strictly invasive species, but it's just growing further in than it used to before. True. Yeah. There is one invasive species, yeah, specifically yeah. the tamarisk tree, sure. that it apparently accounts for about a third of all woody vegetation in the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And that they postulate that that spread might have been controlled by flooding. Sure. But that is a big, like, maybe yeah, could have, knows. we think, possibly situation. So I don't know if I want to, you know, say the dam yeah. caused that to happen, but... <laughs> So in an attempt to help mitigate this, since only 2012, I mean, the dam's been up for, you know, 50 plus years. Mm -hmm. But since 2012, the operators of the dam have tried to mitigate these impacts downstream by mimicking somewhat natural processes, mm -hmm. by releasing high flows of water out of the out of the Glen Canyon mm -hmm. Dam in order to mimic the periodic flooding that would have happened. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, which theoretically, if you release a higher volume of water, it's going to move at a higher rate of speed because mm -hmm. it's a more water going through a narrower space. Right. Therefore, it's going to go at a higher speed, which will theoretically cause more erosion and maybe replace some of the sediment that stayed behind the dam. Yeah. But who knows? That's a that's a pretty tricky prospect. Right well, there. I think they're kind of hoping that it would grab up the sediment that was trapped behind the dam and bring it along with it, too. Maybe, to but that extent. sinks to the bottom. They're not releasing yeah. it from the bottom. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just the the rapid nature of the water that's, you know, Stirring eating, eating more away. But then you're causing more problems. Now you're eating at the canyon walls yeah. at a quicker rate than maybe nature would have. Whether that's a bad thing, I don't know. But that's probably mm -hmm. a real thing. True. Right. Well, but, either way, it's been four years since they actually were able to do a release like this because <laughs> yeah. of, you guessed it, drought. There you go. <laughs> the low Lake Powell water levels just didn't allow for the release and they were also worried about introducing an invasive species of small mouth bass downstream into the canyon too. Billy bass causing problems. <laughs> so, all right. It's so, very complicated. This is a big ecological question. Okay. I know you're about to go hate yeah, all over this. I'm not. Before you go, <laughs> the dam has 
created a big ecological question. I'm not going to say problem because it's something that I think that we need. We need these dams to create electricity, water management, all of that kind of stuff. I think there's a lot of questions that are going to be coming up now and in the future about these dams that were constructed 40, 50, 60 years ago. And like, are the problems and the ecological issues and everything else, the cultural issues, is it worth it? And like, is the balance okay? Like, where is that balance at? So, okay. All right. So go ahead. So so just (laughs) in the last couple of minutes of the podcast here of this segment, I just, I'm not going to deny the fact that the creation of any dam on any river is going to have a negative or at least a different might not even be negative, but it's going to have a different ecological impact downstream. Mm-hmm. That is just guaranteed. Yeah. You're, you're changing how the river is flowing right there. Now, dam operators would probably say, ah, we kind of aren't because it's the same flow of water going through. We just held a bunch of it back for a little while to make a lake. Now the same amount of water is going through. Right. Mm-hmm. But the dam is filtering through the sediments and things like that. It's, it's not allowing species to go through, but in Washington state, there's fish ladders and stuff that the fish can actually like salmon jump and they can jump up these pools of water to get past the dams. That's called a fish ladder. right? So they've done things to try to mitigate the ecological effects. But Mm -hmm. my point is that's all good. We need to worry about the ecology, but like humans aren't part of the ecology in some cases, right? Like Mm -hmm. we are, but then we're very much kind of not like humans, modern humans. We've almost taken ourselves out of the ecological equation. We're trying to bring nature back to nature in so many cases. And I don't feel like Native Americans are really all that much different. Like we're talking about protecting sites where maybe they shouldn't have been to begin with because they were damaging the ecology of the, the base of the Grand Canyon by just being there and being Native Americans in that area. I'm not saying they were, but they I- didn't necessarily live in harmony with nature. They were clearing vegetation. They were, you know, taking species. They were creating structures and living there and doing things which would have had a negative impact on that area to begin with. But it was on such a much smaller scale that sure. I don't think you can make uh, a comparison. Yeah. So I hear you. like even a, a small village on the, the river in the Grand Canyon that cleared out area for agriculture and built structures and stuff like all of that, it might have a small effect on the area that they right. lived in specifically, but it's not going to totally. affect the ecology of the entire river. No, you no, know, no. 100% so agree. It, 100% agree. But when we talked about why we excavate earlier yeah. and the cases where we don't excavate, where we want to preserve and protect, I think in this case, if we want to bring the Grand Canyon back to its natural state, we get rid of those sites because they're not part of the natural state of the Grand Canyon. Well, but you can make that argument for any site across the entire country. Like that is a really slippery I mean, slope. You're so... not wrong. But in some places, we don't need to bring it back because we dug in the Cape Fear River adjacent, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Now it's a golf course in a marina. Yeah. Like that's good. That that was destroyed. So mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, you can't make that argument. But in natural national park type areas, if you want to bring this back to the natural landscape, you got to get rid of everything human created. I know, but like, but it's something that has been absorbed into the current landscape. So to get rid of it, as you say, would actually not, disrupt it a lot more not a than to just years. leave it. No, I don't know about that. I, I come on. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to disagree on this one. I think you're completely <laughs> wrong. Absolutely. 100% wrong. Well, you know what you can do? <laughs> what is that? You can go eat on a twice digested veggie cake. Oh God. <laughs> back in a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the archaeology show episode 216 and <laughs> now is when you can probably shut off the podcast if you want to because it's gonna get pretty gross so if <laughs> yeah, you're like totally. eating if you're eating lunch you know this is like your lunchtime activity just like listening to us drone on about stuff <laughs> I'd suggest just like shut it off listen I've to heard, it on your way home I've heard people like might listen to us when they go to sleep. Not, I don't think that's specific to us. I think it's just like podcasts, podcasts in general. Yeah. People, people like, like to, to fall, do that. Yeah, they like to fall yeah. asleep to people talking. 
Yeah. This one might keep you up. Maybe not. I don't know. It's not scary. It's just like. Listen, on the off gross. chance that you're drifting off to sleep right now, tomorrow, when you wake up, do not eat partially digested food. <laughs> do not do it. From the intestines of <laughs> a large animal. Like, right. Let's be clear. Okay. Yes, so what go are we on. talking about? <laughs> There's an article here. Now, I found it in a mag. In a, like a website called Futurity. So that's what I'm going to kind of talk from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, only because they really distilled down the actual article really well. Yeah. And the article, they link to it. So we have it as well. And it's uh, open source. So you can go look at it. But it's in evolutionary anthropology. The article itself is called Human Consumption of Large Herbivore Digesta and Its Implications for Foraging Theory. That's from evolutionary anthropology. Mm-hmm. The article that we found is called... Did early foragers eat partially digested food from large animals? And I'm going to just basically cut to the chase right here. There is a thing called foraging hypothesis. Okay. And we're talking about hunter gatherers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Foraging hypothesis looks at how many calories and literally takes the science here and says, looks at how many calories and carbohydrates and, and other nutrients does a person need to live at a certain time mm-hmm. in the world and in a, a certain, certain place, place. Yeah. yeah with the things that they had around them yeah. how many calories do you need to just live your day yeah. right not necessarily nutrition right just how much energy do right. you need to do your life <laughs> although nutrition is taken into account oh it is okay. it is taken into account because if you don't have the right nutrition you can't live there right right you're not going to live there for long anyway yeah right so when we're doing these things we the 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 two absolutely big ones i guess actually three absolutely big ones Animals, killing animals, Mm -hmm. meat, right? That's a huge one. Bone marrow, they eat a lot of the animal, Mm -hmm. right? We had bone marrow at a restaurant in Reno one time. It wasn't super great. We did, but it's very fatty. And if you need fat in your diet, it's a highly concentrated version of that nutrient. And here's the thing. They didn't know they needed fat. They didn't know they needed salt. They didn't know they needed calcium. They didn't know they needed all these other things. They just ate everything. Mm -hmm. But because they were so active and they ate... You know, I hate to, you know, sound like this, but they ate all these natural things with, that were not processed, almost no sugar, except for natural sugars uh, when they had fruit and things like that. But that just inherently kept them healthier. That and the fact that they just lived outside, r- ran around doing stuff, and it's just you just burn calories doing yeah. that. Yeah. But because of the sexual dimorphism, which means different sizes of men and women, it's assumed that the killing of the animal par- portion of it was largely done by men. And it's not assumed that women couldn't do that. It's just assumed that men did that because of the large nature of the animals in, say, the late Pleistocene Mm -hmm. and and early prehistory. So from like around 10,000 years ago, give or take. And also that women were doing the childbearing piece of the the evolutionary puzzle too. Not just childbearing, although I'm willing to bet they were pregnant constantly. that's, that is a bit of a myth, though, because they probably didn't have that many children. But we've talked about that in past yeah. podcasts, so we don't need to rehash that. I'm now, not saying but. they had a lot of children. I'm just saying they were likely pregnant a lot. But some of the children didn't survive. Yes. You know, there were complications. But true. they would have had sex. I mean, they, whenever they could, really. I mean, why not? Right. Because that's just that's just how it goes. Right. There's there's ethnographic evidence of hunter-gatherer societies from the last 150 years that do that, right? They're just not too concerned with how many children they have. The more, the better. Yeah. So when we talked about Lady Sapiens, they mm-hmm. they talked about that specifically and how these prehistoric 
human ancestors probably didn't have as many children because it was probably spread out more than you think because, uh, yeah. because after they had a child, there was a longer period before they were able to get pregnant again right. through because of breastfeeding and various other hormonal things. So sure. they might've had sex all the time, but they probably weren't pregnant all the time is what right. I'm saying <laughs> and what we've but talked about in the past. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I mean by that is, you know, if you take the, the female core of the group, right, mm-hmm. they were likely the thought is, that they were likely, you know, helping each other out because the men were off hunting. Right? Yeah, that was I know the whole that, thing. that whole. And yeah. while while they're doing their thing, they're foraging for, you know, roots and tubers and berries and fruit and whatever they could get, you know, that they can eat. They're in some cases not 10,000 years ago, but later on, they're mm-hmm. making baskets. They're, mm-hmm. you know, tending to the campfire. They're doing all those things because the men are out doing the hunting and they're bringing back the meat, yep. which is going to be the, the major source. Well, there's been lots of dispute on that saying yep. that. Meat probably wasn't as big a source as people think it was, mm-hmm. but either way, you take what you can get, right? There's been a lot of deconstructing of the whole <laughs> like been a lot. myth between yeah, who, which sex did what work, right? And we still can't know, like it's impossible to know, really. Yeah. But anyway, well, here's this article sheds light on a new food source that may have. <laughs> it's I never thought I know. about it. <laughs> it would it wouldn't have been considered. It's never been considered in foraging hypothesis, but this new food source may have made it so for short periods of time, everybody just did the same thing. Yeah. You know, the women, the men, if you've got a mastodon in some cases, or Uh you've got a bison Bison. in most cases, because bison were pretty prevalent if we're talking about, say, you know, North America. And very big. And huge. Yeah. Yeah, huge. Um, But you've got these animals. They would have, uh, and it's bison specifically here, because I think the study was done in in North America here. Mm -hmm. But this would probably apply pretty much anywhere. Mm -hmm. But... Again, it, it could have been a more scarce kill to take something down like that. It's not like they needed a bison every day, right? Mm-hmm. Bison are huge. They will provide meat for a long time. If you go kill five of them, you can't even store the food. Right. It's just going to go bad. Yeah. And they would know that. They don't want to they they waste. They really didn't. <laughs> uh, once they killed them in the winter. But anyway, so... It's been it's been coming around and I don't know if we have evidence that anybody actually did this, but it was an available food source. So bison specifically and other large herbivores, they eat grass all day long. Mm -hmm. Grass and other, you know, high plains, prairie type type grasses. Right. Mm -hmm. They are just constantly eating because they're so gigantic. It's like cows. Mm -hmm. Cows weigh fifteen hundred pounds and they have to eat pretty much all the time because they're burning five thousand calories a day because they weigh fifteen hundred pounds. Right. They're not moving a lot. Not a lot of calories in grass either. So there's not a lot. Basically, just have to keep eating you all have the to time, eat all day long, yeah. right? And and bison are no different. They have to pretty much eat all day long. That's why their natural, you know, the way they stand, their head is two inches off the ground because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like put it where the food is. Right. So, Let's not make this hard. <laughs> no. So because they were doing that, there's a thing called digesta, which is the <laughs> and here's where it gets gross. Which is the vegetable matter in the stomachs. And the digestive tracts of bison and other large herbivores. So when they they eat it, it goes into their stomach. You've got this mass of just churning stomach fluids that's breaking down the, the grasses to make it more, you know, so they can get the nutrients out. That's mm-hmm. what stomachs do. And then it's got to go through your digestive system. And I would be willing to bet a, a bison has, since they're mammals, they look just like us mm-hmm. internally. They would have an even longer digestive tract oh, than we probably do. Giant. Yeah, yeah, it must be giant. Yeah. So if you get it at the right point before it, I mean, I hate to say it, turns into crap, <laughs> then, you know. But... The way they eat and are constantly moving things through the process, there's probably always like stacked up yeah. digesta 
You could just in various you could just cut that up like sushi. <laughs> really points of digestion. You just like chop it and you got little sushi rolls. <laughs> oh my god, that is so gross. Yeah. So, but if they ate this. This would have pro- provided a, a fairly high number of nutrients and mm-hmm. calories. But here's the thing. Um, the study was looking into this and they said that even if they did this, they probably couldn't have sustained more than a group of about 25 people off of one bison for more than a couple of days. Because even if they ate all the meat and then they ate the digesta as well, it's still not enough nutrients in, in enough variety mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have to like go get some nuts and some fruit and stuff yeah. or whatever you had. Right. Yeah. So you still have to eat other things, but this would have been like, crap, Thor took down a bison. We got to eat all of this right now. And they would have been, <laughs> Thor. <laughs> yeah, Thor. And they would have been, they would have been good for like three or four days. And the women wouldn't have had to gather theoretically, yeah. you know, I mean, when you got banned societies later on, they learned to, pretty much gather throughout the entire season mm-hmm. and 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 hunt, and that's when the foraging theory really changes because once they got into bigger groups and they were more sedentary they really had to gather a lot more stuff to live over the winter and mm-hmm. they realized that you know meat only lasts as long as meat lasts but nuts last forever yeah right you could just bury these things i mean sure they'll rot if you don't do it right but they could roast them they roast pine nuts down in southern california here where we're at all the time oh yeah that's true yeah Yeah, and they would roast these things because once you roasted them they're still nutritious of course you destroy some of the nutrients but you make it more palatable Mm -hmm. and you make it so you could eat it because if i'm not mistaken the runoff from like pine trees is turpentine and like so sap and stuff. I'm pretty sure that's where turpentine comes from. It's close. It's some. It, it is made it's from it somehow. Yeah. It's not good for you. Yeah. You can't just eat pine nuts generally. You have to you clean have them. To, you have to. Yeah. And then roast them. Yeah. You can eat fresh pine nuts without roasting them, but you have to. You have to clean them heavily. Yeah. And they knew that, and they would do that, and then that would do that. But back in you know ten, twelve thousand years ago, they didn't really come to the realization yet, and they really didn't kind of need to because they just went where the food was, mm-hmm. and then they would you know do these optimal strategies. So, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty gross, but I'll tell you what, if you got nothing else and you know, maybe it wasn't gross to them. Like I think eating grasshoppers is gross, but that's actually, we saw grasshoppers served in Mexico on the beach. Yeah, Like we were sitting on the beach and they were walking around with food. When you see the variety of food go by, uh, we were at a popular weekend where there's a lot of tourists and they're Mexican tourists. Yeah. And everybody stops by and you've got like, do I want a henna tattoo? No, I don't. Do I want a pair of sunglasses? No, I don't. Do I want a pizza in a delivery box that somebody went and bought? And they're specifically yeah, delivering I pizzas. I might, I might want, want that. I might want that. Do I want shrimp that's uncooked? No, pretty sure I don't want that either. <laughs> Do I want grasshoppers that are yeah. sitting here roasted like, in a bag? Like in a bucket. In he a had bucket. a huge bucket of them. And then all these like toppings, tahini and stuff to go with them. So, yeah. <laughs> the only person that wanted the grasshoppers wasn't a person. It was Wookie. <laughs> Wookie the, the dog. dog that we were with. Wookie the dog wanted the grasshoppers. But he also yeah. wanted the pizza and yeah. the shrimps. He, he didn't yeah. discriminate. No. He would have had anything. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted all of it. Yeah. Uh, Wookie. Was it grasshoppers or crickets? What's I'm the difference? Mis- They're both gross. I'm misremembering now. I think it might have been crickets. But- there is a subtle difference between grasshoppers <laughs> and crickets that I don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that is just, fair. Yeah, that is fair. So, anyway, the point is, it's likely that they would have eaten all the all the animal. Yeah, we just haven't really thought of that part of the animal. We know they ate the liver. We know they ate the heart. We know they ate other internal organs mm-hmm. because why not? Yeah, right. It wasn't gross to them, you know. And also, you got to live. Yeah, you might not have eaten for days. Yeah, in some cases. So the idea here is that 
this bison, because of the variety of nutrients, if you include the digesta as part of those nutrients, because of that variety, it can almost take a break from foraging and, you know, hunting for a couple days while this fed all That's the idea. And I just wonder, is that applying like modern ideas to what they were doing rather than what would have been the life of a prehistoric person where all they thought about was where their next food was coming from? I mean, they didn't know how many calories they were eating, how much nutrition they were getting. Do you really think that they would have sat around for, you know, a week after killing a bison and not hunted or looked for other food or foraged at all? So... Because they wouldn't have known that but, they were getting everything they needed. But yes, I think they would have. How? Because we have ethnographic evidence of it. Oh, from modern populations. From modern populations. Okay. Modern primitive populations. Yeah, yeah. There is a book that I can't recommend more called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes. Uh-huh. Can't remember who wrote it. I read it probably eight, nine years ago. The quick backstory is, I think it was written, I don't remember what it was written, but the guy who wrote it lived in this society down in South America Uh, Back in like the 70s or something, Mm -hmm. 60s or 70s. And his goal of going down there, moving his whole family down there uh, and living in this village with these people was to basically learn their language, translate the Bible into their language and then teach them Christianity. He was a missionary. Mm -hmm. His whole family was. But after a couple of years of living with them and studying them and going hunting with them and doing all these things with them, he totally turned his life around and basically became like an anthropologist and wrote this book. Hmm. You know, he turned away from Christianity and his missionary work. I don't know if he turned away from Christianity entirely, but definitely the missionary work. Mm -hmm. He saw that mission is no longer viable Mm -hmm. and he wanted to study these people instead. So it's it's an amazing book. But one of the things that I thought was really cool and interesting that I had never really thought of before, but what's true there, why wouldn't this be true in the past, the far past, is that if they had a big kill, if they, if somebody brought back a lot of food, it didn't matter if that was at one o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the morning, everybody mm-hmm. was up and they ate the whole thing. They ate all of it. Now they had fire, of course. So yeah. they cooked it all. They ate it. They partied. And then they would sleep for three days. You know, they would just be like, I'm not eating anymore. You know, not three days. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They would but just, just be like sedentary completely because, lethargic after because they did it. Indulging themselves like that. And, yeah. Yeah. They were totally in the moment because yeah. they lived. First off, they lived in the jungle mm-hmm. and the jungle provides. Yeah. Right. You want food? You just go in the jungle and get yeah, it. Yeah, you'll find something. Right. But you don't always get the big kills. Yeah. All the time. And when they did get the big kill. It was just like, everybody clocked out. Let's do this. Yeah. Because they didn't have jobs. They didn't have anything else they were doing. Mm -hmm. They were just living. Yeah. Okay. So I think that people would have taken it as a, as a welcome break from daily hunter gatherer life Mm -hmm. and said, you know what? We, we got this bison. There's a, sh- a cool cave over there. Let's just like chill for a bit. <laughs> draw you know? some painting, paintings. Yeah, let's you know? draw some stuff on the yeah. rocks. <laughs> I'm all bison high, so I want to draw some circles on the rocks, <laughs> you know? But uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it, that's possible when you put it like that. If if it has more of a like ritual, ritualistic yeah. component to it, maybe. Like maybe that was part of it is that they had to put everything down and just enjoy this huge kill. But the the flip side of that was that they took a break from everything they were doing but that was cool because they were getting everything they needed from this giant animal kill including eating the undigested wow. bits of vegetation I mean, in their partially intestines digested. It was partially digested <laughs> partially digested bits of yeah. vegetation <laughs> what i think is really cool about this is that it it calls into question this relatively linear thinking that i don't think anybody believes a hundred percent they're just like hey Optimal foraging theory means 
they're going to do these things to do these things mm-hmm. to survive. And this is mathematically the best way to do it. Yeah. Men do the the thrusting and hard spear work and, and, and cutting of things because they're just stronger generally. And and women, you know, are bearing children, caring for the children, and then also doing the things around the camps that they can do in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's just it makes sense to divide labor that way if that's 100 percent true. Yeah. But if you've got the opportunity to take a break for a few days and then get all the nutrients you think you need for that period of time and you know it's going to work, then all hands on deck. Yeah. Let's do this. It's just another way to show that probably the dynamics of a group like this is way more complicated than just men go hunt, women go gather and watch the kids. You know, like it must have been so much more complicated than that. And there was a lot of factors. And yet again, it's a myth that sort of. Yeah came up from the male dominated 1800s. I don't need to go down into well, that rabbit hole of sexism and all right. that and how it influenced the field and way the way we looked at past populations in archaeology. But this is just one other way that we can kind of deconstruct some of that stuff. One thing that this helps shed some light on uh, and, and other things that we found as archaeologists are lending credence to this theory is that there's been other studies that show graves from across North and South America from the late glacial period, which is, you know, 13,000 to about 8,000 years ago, mm-hmm. 30 to 50% of the large game hunters during that time could have been female. And that's coming from grave goods because oh, throughout time, right. yeah. almost every society on the planet that has tossed things in with a burial are things that either represent that person uh-huh. or that that person might need in the afterlife, which yep. means they know how to use it. Yep. And, you know, or something that just like symbolizes who they are. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you look at and you see large projectile points, you know, you're not going to probably find a wooden spear. But if you see large projectile points, then fully intact, yeah. buried with a person, not even buried, but just like with them because they didn't really bury people eight to 13,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. They may have done that in certain places, but these are just grave goods that are found with them. Mm-hmm. And if somebody was killed with a large projectile point, it probably broke. Mm-hmm. But if it's a fully intact one, you know, maybe that's a, a case where this was a, a hunter and we know if they're male or female, that's easy to tell. Yeah. If they you find these goods with them, it's like, oh, why did we find that? And we may have assumed maybe they were a hunter, but we just never really had any other solid theories around that. Yeah. You know, it makes me want to know the percentage of male graves with the same thing. Right. And if it breaks out kind of evenly, I mean, there, I just, there's no reason again, gender stereotypes. Like yeah. there's no reason to think that the young fit, strong women, females weren't out there with the young fit, strong males doing the hunting and, and getting right. that job done. And if there was a male or a female who didn't fit the profile for that, maybe they had been sick as a kid. Maybe they had some kind of spine issue. You know, there are a lot of different reasons. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't just be adopted into the other side of the community doing the work that doesn't require such physical strength. So we always want to keep assigning gender stereotypes that are modern gender stereotypes to Mm -hmm. past populations. And people are doing such good work to get away from that. But it is something that needs to continue and to keep deconstructing that because there's just no reason to think that they would have looked at men and women the same way that men and women have been looked at in our current modern populations. There's just no reason for that. Yeah. And the current paper, uh, the study author is a researcher. Her name is uh, Raven Garvey. Mm -hmm. And, 
she was, you know, looking at this and saying that, you know, this really would have been pertinent to the people of the late glacial period, like we said, eight, 13,000, 8,000 mm-hmm. years ago, more than likely because of the presence of larger of the herbivores. Large, yeah. There were more of them, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of extinct species from that time that are no longer around. Right. Mm-hmm. So they would have had different food sources, you know, things that we, we can only really guess at, to mm-hmm. be honest, because of what we know of other mammals and the remains that we found. So I can imagine the, like, baseball bat sized digestive tracts of some of those mammals oh like God. it just would have been enormous you want but, sushi you can have a steak yeah right <laughs> veggie sticks. Little, little veggie sticks oh, um, that's so gross anyway it's it's as populations grew in size that sort of thing would have been pretty unsustainable and they wouldn't necessarily have needed it because of the growing population size and we're just making the assumption that it was gross and they didn't want to eat it but they did because they had to but as they grew as they grew in size, they maybe wouldn't have had to eat it. But like I said, there's cultures that eat there's some weird cultures, stuff. There's cultures. There's no. Again, you can't yeah. assign your own modern you ideas can't. to past people. It's you called, don't know what was gross to them. It's called a bias. You yeah. can't put your own bias on it. It is. So, you really can't. So that's yeah. that's the takeaway from this segment. I think is don't apply your modern and personal biases to people in the past. You just you can't know. All right. Well, that's enough <laughs> for this time. It's a long episode. Yeah, we'll be. Uh, <laughs> We'll be back next time. You guys go have yourselves a veggie burger. We'll see you next week. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.arcpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, Thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.